0: This is Larry Daniel Favors, and welcome to the Hub (music) Attorney Scott. Hechinger, and I'm going to have to ask you to forgive me for mispronouncing your name. Uh, he is a brilliant attorney I've been following for quite some time on Twitter, for nearly a decade. Uh, he has served as a public defender in Brooklyn. He's represented people with charged with crimes who could not afford attorneys. He's also shared his perspective as a public defender outside of the court in a variety of ways. Uh, so I'm excited to speak with him not only about what we're seeing as it pertains to a particular subset of laws, but also what we're seeing as it pertains to defense attorneys really reframing the conversation conversation. Attorney Hetchinger, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Hey, Marie, really good to be on with you. It's Heckinger, but don't worry. Uh, <laughs> no one gets it right, and it's a mouthful. But let me just say, I'm glad I hopped on a little bit early to hear the last bit of your last segment, because we are speaking the same language. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. And thank you for that correction. I remember first meeting you on L. Joy Williams' show, Sunday Civics, a long, long time ago, before the pandemic. And I was so fascinated by that conversation that I've been following you ever since. And yeah, I had a feeling we might be on a similarly aligned in this conversation. <laughs> a few days ago, you launched a Twitter thread that was both uh, enraging and highly educational and it was about this subset of laws that are are, i guess couched under the umbrella of non-unanimous juries and then you added information about how these laws are connected to kkk era policies can you explain to the audience what is a non-unanimous jury and what in the world does the kkk have to do with it
1: yeah you got it so you know, state violence right now is more visible than it's ever been before for folks, at least, that are not already living in communities that are over-policed and oppressed. But we also have to understand that racism is baked into our laws, uh, mm. mostly in ways that initially got passed in far subtler ways, claiming to you know, promote public health and, and safety when they have and were intended to produce outsized harm on Black and brown communities. Non-unanimous juries is one of those classes of laws that was passed overtly in order to hurt uh, black and brown people and other minority groups. So in, the eight, in 1898 and then later in 19, uh, 1934, the KKK passed laws and influenced laws in just two states, Louisiana and Oregon, that would allow them to convict whoever they wanted. The KKK is known for, most, most known were physical violence, intimidation, um, less known for the fact that they were highly influential in state legislators. Mm-hmm. Le- legislatures. What a non-unanimous jury allows is for uh, if there are two jurors who find the on- that there was, was uh, reason to doubt that someone was guilty, those jurors' voices can be ignored. The, the principle of a jury trial is unanimity. If someone doesn't think that there's enough evidence to, to support a conviction, they're acquitted. That's centered, that, that is foundational to our democracy, to our uh, system of justice. But they didn't want that in Louisiana and, and, and Oregon. So in the off chance that a black or brown juror ended up on a jury to begin with, or in Oregon, yeah. that uh, those folks or, or Jews or Catholics or other disfavored groups, and they had a difference of opinion, those voices could be silenced. What was the impact? And what is the continuing impact? Untold and countless numbers of people convicted and imprisoned who wouldn't have been convicted and imprisoned in any other state in the entire country or the mm. federal government. Um, And on the other side, jurors' voices who are doing their civic duty utterly silenced. And you'd think that 80 years ago a law passed in 1934 that everyone recognizes, including current leaders and the people in power to do something about it in Oregon and Louisiana, um, that they would do something now. Like it wouldn't have an effect now, but hundreds of people in Oregon remain imprisoned based upon this racist law. And uh, it ties in what can happen next and what's been going on ties very neatly into what you're talking about, about D.A. Zapata and how it's one thing to claim to want to end systemic injustice and a whole nother to actually act on it.
0: <laughs> now, I, I got to be honest with you, when you say Louisiana, that that makes logical sense to me. Louisiana, a large slaveholding state, uh, part of the South, it seems like, OK, if we're going to see KKK influencing legislation, it, it makes natural sense. But Oregon, I I mean, Oregon does not strike (laughs) me as a as a bastion of blackness. Uh, It does not strike me as a space that is phenomenally diverse. Perhaps I'm wrong. Anywhere outside of, I guess, Portland. What was happening in Oregon that made this law fit in so well with what else was happening there?
1: So it was surprising for me to find this out, too. I actually got introduced to this issue uh, by one of the most incredible people I've ever met. His name is Calvin Duncan. He was wrongfully imprisoned in Louisiana in Angola prison for 20 and a half, mm. 28 and a half years and became a well-known, amazing jailhouse lawyer. And he took on 99 of his juries um, as his one of his causes. And when he got released back in 2011, he was the one that for eight years filed a, uh, filed a brief after brief in the Supreme Court um, 23 times. And on the 23rd try, got the Supreme Court to hear the issue. I'll go back to him in a second. But he told me when I met him, he told me about the racist history of Oregon that people don't realize, at least folks outside of Oregon. Oregon, even before it was officially a state, actually was established as a territory with a kind of a white-only rule. They actually, was mm. built, like their initial founding charter, it was supposed to be a white kind of utopia, where black people weren't actually allowed. So people who, still, who live there now, um, who are black or brown, are actually ancestors of folks uh, who lived there but were kind of living as, as folks that were disinvited. We're, we're already marginalized. We're not technically supposed to even be there. Um, and then around wow. the 1920s the KKK influence increased um, and led to this kind of landscape and this environment and this vibe around 1934 that just made it the kind of this perfect setup to, for uh, to pass this law. To, that was explicitly modeled off of what Louisiana had already been doing for 35 years. like, hey, look, they're they're getting to convict whoever they want to. Let's mm. do this here. Sounds like a great idea, and they made it happen. And unfortunately, the impact is still being felt.
0: You know, it's it, I was mentioning earlier how there are other groups internationally regimes that are committed to oppression will study each other to determine you know well what what are the americans doing how did they get so good at this whole racism thing and there's a lot of literature written about uh the ways in which the nazis for example studied american legal systems and american legal jurisprudence so that they would have a model uh that they could look to for guidance this is like a, a list of best practices i guess and so the idea of states looking to each other to see how effective their suppression uh, of whatever group of people that are on the, that issue at that point. It makes sense to me that that would be happening in the past because we're seeing it happening right now. We're seeing it with, with voter suppression in the same way that these laws are spreading across the country. We're seeing it with the criminalization of protests. Again, laws spreading across the country. So the idea that states would look to each other for guidance on how best to suppress people, is it makes perfect sense but it also is disgusting. <laughs> so I just i, I just had to totally
1: disgusting, no, but what's 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 also interesting? I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the Nazis, and it's hard to mention the Nazis and not also think about what we hear about all the time, this whole thing about I'm just following the law, which happens right now and it's happening throughout the country when it comes to, you know, prosecutors, when it comes to police, when it comes to Mayors, governors, state actors on both sides of the political aisle. This is not just a Republican issue. In fact, in many cases, progressive leaders and governors and mayors and attorneys general are way worse. In Oregon, uh-huh. right now, this idea of "I'm just following the law" is also hyper relevant to this particular issue of 99% juries. Um, Ellen Rosenblum, she is the attorney general of Oregon. She is broadly loved. She is uh, considered progressive. She's done incredible things for range of justice issues, including uh, refusing to defend a law that made it uh, illegal to get married, if you were um, LGBTQ, to, mm. to each other. Now, she uh, in 2004, she was a judge um, and for, for a number of years, and she presided over countless trials uh, that resulted uh, with convictions from non-unanimous juries and sentence folks like Terrence Hayes who is now a leader in this movement to try to end the racist stain of these laws, sentenced him to 13 years. Mm. She's now the attorney general, and she has been on a years-long crusade to just follow the law, to keep this white supremacist law alive. I mentioned Calvin Duncan. After 23 attempts, he finally gets the case in the Supreme Court. And folks like Justice Kavanaugh are on the record saying this law is rooted in racism and a desire to diminish the voices of black jurors. He ruled that this law was unconstitutional. Guess which side Ellen Rosenblum came in? She oh joined God. Louisiana in their opposition to, uh, in their in their support of maintaining the law. In the wake of that decision, the wake of the Supreme Court decision, she followed the law now required by the Supreme Court to not oppose retrials for those folks that were covered by that Supreme Court decision. But what about all those folks who were unlucky enough to have been convicted? Before that Supreme Court decision, where it didn't even apply in her to them, courtroom, called, retroactively, even in her courtroom. Well, that exactly. Exactly. But now as attorney general. What is she going to do? Well, she wound up opposing every single cl- ask and request for a retrial under that new Supreme Court case because she was just following the law. The Supreme Court didn't require it. She had the power still to do it and to, to be able to do what was right. Because she also acknowledged the law was racist. And then guess what? Supreme Court takes up the case and wonder. And and the question is, should our decision, you know, Kavanaugh saying this is racist, this is so racist, it's unconstitutional, should that be applied to cases where people are convicted uh, and still in prison based upon the past? She again files a friend of the court brief asking the court to rule no, that you should not rule that this that this racist uh, that the racist impact should um, uh, should cease to exist for these folks in the past. And she won. Just a couple of weeks ago, Mm. edwards Ivanoy came out and Justice Kavanaugh ruled that despite the fact that he ruled that this law was racist, he did not think that that ruling should apply to folks simply because they were convicted too far in the past. And she still, Ellen Rosenblum, still continues today to not use her power to do justice. And I'll just say one last thing about Ellen Rosenblum. She had the gall on the anniversary of George Floyd's killing on Twitter to go on Twitter and to invoke his name, to call for the end to systemic Injustice, Mm. while at the same time doing everything she can to oppose dismantling a racist legal monument in her state that everyone agrees, including her, is racist. It's an embarrassing, as she said, stain on their otherwise progressive state. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm pretty outraged.
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm, I'm right there with you, my friend. <laughs> right there with you. I'm, I'm reminded, uh, I keep coming back uh, to the case, uh, God, was it McCluskey, where there, there was basically the presentation of evidence that similarly said, yeah, racism is really producing racially disparate mm-hmm. outcomes in the criminal justice system, and SCOTUS was kind of like, yeah, it is, but... It's going to be too big of an issue for us to resolve it. So we're just going to basically build in a safe harbor, if you will, uh, for a certain level of racism. We're, we're just going to have to, it's a fundamental part of the system. We're, we're just, that. it just is what it is. I'm reminded of yeah. those types of, of leanings because this idea that you can still carry the label of progressive Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, uh, and perhaps you might be progressive on an issue. You might be progressive as it pertains to a community. As you mentioned, her, her advocacy on behalf of the LGBTQ community and refusing to enforce that. Uh, that homophobic law and you can be progressive in that area and yet preserve racism in policy and in your, your, profession such that it doesn't matter to me if you are carrying the label of progressive or if you are actually uh, a racist or not it does i don't need to label you what you're doing is producing racist outcomes there are people in jail right right. now who are suffering who she sentenced to go to jail under a law that she acknowledges is racist and they are still locked up and she refuses in her new position to use her power to free them you mentioned the the gentleman who is working to combat this. What on the ground is happening in Oregon? How how is this being examined? Is there an out, outcry that we should be looking to, to for guidance? What where is the the outrage beyond just uh, our Twitter threads? What what is happening on the ground to combat this?
1: It's just actually really exciting. You know, it, it, I think it's it's. I have mixed feelings about uh, you know these campaigns around progressive prosecutors. I'm using heavy air quotes, if you could see me. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I also, obviously, I want more forward-thinking prosecutors in that office. But one potential impact of that is a greater general awareness of the power of state leaders, of local leaders to actually change and dismantle these systems before having to wait for like lengthy legislative um, legislative efforts. And I think in part because of that, but also because of folks like Calvin Duncan, this jailhouse lawyer, because of Cash Spencer, who was actually a juror on a unanimous juror, a jury, and talking about just the, the the pain of her voice being silenced because of Terrence Hayes. There's actually a movement for accountability, um, and uh, in Oregon, that's really unprecedented and an issue, that especially that's like kind of this. First, I, I just want to say, like you Naniyam's know, stories, it sounds super legal and wonky and boring. Mm. But there's there's a forty organization um, coalition that is a that is array that is organizing and that is organized uh, uh, not against elements, but for just for calling on her to use the power that she has to do simple justice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's national organizations. Human Rights Watch filed a letter telling her, asking her to do do justice, to apply this decision retroactively, use her power, and said that her failure to do so was actually in contravention of international human rights standards. Uh, ACLU wow. has, get it, has gotten involved. Color change has gotten involved. There's a range of local leaders. There's a uh, campaign, a website in um, campaign called Still in Prison. So it's mm. stillinprison.org, um, alluding to the fact that people are still in prison uh, because of this racist law. Um, and uh, so there's a lot, there's a lot of activity and a lot of action on the ground. Um, finally, you know, holding a leader accountable for for or trying to hold a leader accountable for uh, to use the power that they have. And I just, I'll just say, you know, this needs to happen more across the country. You talked about people progressive in name only. I think a lot of folks who are who are progressive, who want, who truly want justice, who want just outcomes, are kind of lulled into this sense of wow, Republicans are so bad um, mm. that, like, this is wonderful. We've got this, like, amazing liberal progressive Democrat. And, and so we, we kind of just ignore, um, at least in certain areas, their kind of overt cruelty and, and indifference to human suffering inside of jails and prisons and the streets uh, as it relates to police uh, prosecutions, jail and prison. And we just need to wake up and realize that, you know, Cuomo, Governor Whitmer in Michigan, Gavin Newsom out in California and just... Basically, every single progressive leader who's out there talking about the importance of social justice aren't using their power to actually make Mm. it happen. And if they need to, and the only way they're going to is if we start paying attention and stop giving them a pass simply because they're blue.
0: I am reminded of a conversation we had uh, with uh, journalist Roland Martin. And one of the things he would admonish was that we got to stop being snookered by the headlines and the labels. Right? So the idea <laughs> of being a progressive and sort of carrying that mantle, it sounds real good and it plays real well in certain circles. But when you have the ability to use your power, I'm thinking of you, you mentioned Governor Cuomo uh, and the refusal to grant clemency, the refusal to to use his power to minimize the number of people who were in jails in the state of New York who Mm -hmm. coincidentally were literally used, we literally got sanitizer. Mm -hmm. New York State, branded hand sanitizer at the height of the pandemic was being manufactured by incarcerated men and women in New York State jails who could not themselves use the hand sanitizer to keep themselves clean because the alcohol content made it contraband. And so we have, you know, there was calls for Governor Cuomo who got a whole lot of praise during the pandemic and a whole lot of criticism and much fallout thereafter, had the ability to minimize the exposure of people who were dealing with COVID and did not do so. So the idea that you can have this power and not use it, to me, you are as bad as the district attorney in Pittsburgh, who I was mentioning in the first at the top of this hour, uh, Steven Zapala, who has said, yeah, I, my, there might be criminal justice or criminal <laughs> racism in the criminal justice system. You called me out on it. I'm going to use my power to crush you. To me, there, there's not really much difference between someone who's being proactive about preserving racism in the system and someone who's just acquiescing and refusing to use their I- power to act. Maybe that's. I think speaking.
1: in some ways it's actually more dangerous, right? Mm. I think it's more dangerous the, the folks that are refusing to use their power to act or are kind of getting a pass because of their their kind of progressive bona fide bona fides on like a range of issues and and uh, still doing so much harm because you know that's I think that that exacts lo- longer term damage when it's, mm. at least you're saying it you can kind of point it out you can in this case you know file ethics compl- in the Zapata case file ethics complaints. He, he actually you know if the allegations are true what he said that's that's a that's not even just a First amendment violation yeah. it's also a, a crime it's actually a federal yeah. civil rights crime uh, to to kind of threaten retaliation based upon speech uh, when you're in that kind of position so yeah I, I, I get even you know more concerned over folks like governor Cuomo attorney generals like uh, like Ellen Rosenblum uh, folks like Gavin Newsom um, yeah we need to Need to hold them accountable. No one should mm. be getting a pass if they're not doing everything they can in their power to dismantle this, this this system that was designed to oppress people that don't look like me.
0: Right. Absolutely. Now, you're not just talking about this in this particular case. You actually have now uh, created an institution that is teaching public defenders how they can do what it is that you're doing, how they can call attention to these issues, how they can be more active and effective at combating uh, these types of structural oppressions. Talk to us about Zealous and and what the goal for that institution is.
1: Yeah, so I was a public defender for close to a decade. I first did special education litigation for low-income families, and then for most of the time was at Brooklyn Defender Services, representing people charged with crimes, and was really frustrated early on, um, right away, in starting... By the fact that despite having you know kind of enormous resources in this office in Brooklyn, investigators, social workers, relatively low caseloads, still ninety-five percent of convictions were coming from guilty pleas, and 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 silence was, uh, uh, truth was being silenced, and these complicated stories uh, were being kind of deprived of their nuance, and so I started thinking about how um, I, but as uh, I, but our office, public defenders, of public defenders could. Leverage our expertise and perspective and partner, truly partner with the people we represented to fight for systemic change outside of court um, in order to bring justice in the streets, but also change the laws and practices that that crushed the people that we were representing, people in communities we were representing. And out of that work, Zealous developed. And the idea of Zealous is it's a national uh, national initiative uh, working with defenders, uh, communities and people that they represent, artists. Um, and uh, yet, yeah, and, and and people with direct experience to sh- take their expertise, to take their experiences, use technology and advanced advocacy storytelling techniques, new media advocacy things you definitely don't lo- learn in law school, <laughs> right? To um, to like to 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 transform the system. Um, and so we're, we we are kind of a national organization with a really a hyper local approach. We work with local defender offices and that kind of that collaborative advocacy kind of coalition training on these skills through actual the actual pressing issues that they're currently working on. We're not like a comm shop. We don't just come in and you know, train and then roll out. Um, we, you know, train and but it's you know the working trainings and we work closely not just to try to end systemic injustices from uh, or, or change things like from non-police response to mental health issues in Harris County, Texas, or fines and fees in Louisiana, solitary in Michigan, um, and pushing back against fear-mongering in Chicago over violence and appropriate responses to it. Um, But we also work kind of longer term on strengthening that coalition. We have so Mm. many silos in our advocacy space, bringing them together, breaking down relationships of distrust so we can work better as coalition, and also strengthening local capacity. It's been... Extremely exciting, and we're just kind of poised for a lot of growth right now. Defenders, but also that those those other groups, so artists, community organizations, and folks who are both inside and outside, um, in some way, controlled or have been controlled by, this, by the by the criminal legal system. Um, our voices have been kind of uh, sh- kind of shut out because of just the noise of fear and sensationalism and. Um, yeah, of procarceral forces, and today more than ever, we don't need to just be responding and fighting back. We need to be proactive. We need to take mm. the narrative yes. and the ownership of, you know, victim and survivor and violence. Like we care about public health and health and safety too. We have very different ideas That's and right. actual ones that will work to actually get us there that don't involve, you know, oppressing entire generations of people, locking people in cages, and frankly, making everything a whole lot worse. Mm.
0: Are there district attorney's offices that you've seen that are doing this right, that that are approaching this from a, I, I won't say right, uh, approaching it from a better, more equitable perspective?
1: So, yeah, I, I appreciate <laughs> appreciate you not setting me up with the, like, is it right or wrong? You know, it's tough, <laughs> right. right? Because, like, if, you, if you're working right now in, in, you know, district attorney's office, the way things are right now, some people... Uh, a large number of people are still being locked up for crimes of violence when they harm other people, even though we know, based upon data, based upon what we know about the conditions of prison and punishment, that those approaches do not lead both to accountability or to healing for either the person who harmed or the person who was harmed. Mm. Um, there's still just way too many people being locked up and we're spending far too much money on it no matter what. Are there better practices than others? Sure. Sure like Larry Krasner, for example, in Philadelphia, mm. some of the stuff that he's done in terms of just shifting the culture of the office away from a, you know, a, what a win, the thing that we celebrate is, is, you know, getting that conviction or getting those years under a guilty plea. You first have to actually prove to him, uh, you need to do a cost benefit analysis if you're actually going to seek a carceral approach. So just, you know, kind of the shift in incentives I think is a really important approach. I think one of the things we're seeing throughout um, some of the more forward-thinking offices are coming up with, you know, really firm policies on who they're going to call um, as witnesses when you're a police officer, um, when you're a cop, which are the vast majority of complainants in criminal cases, and you know, just uh, declining to prosecute um, or rely on folks that have been found to have either hurt someone um, in the past or mm. have lied before. Which seems, again, pretty obvious, and it's a little <laughs> bit sad that this is actually an innovation, but. but it is and then you know using their power to um to not prosecute certain classes of of things that are considered crimes like crimes that result from mental health issues uh, substance abuse issues poverty lack of housing um etc um and you know not asking for bail even if bail is is allowed so not following the law if they don't or at least following the law and their power to use it but doing the opposite of what folks like Ellen Rosenblum are doing. Mm. But still, I want to drive home that no matter how, quote-unquote, progressive or forward-thinking you are, if you are not using your bully pulpit to go out there and talk about the hard cases, you know, what I would say, what I call, like, the non-non-non, the non, uh, or, well, the opposite of the non-non-non. So, like, you, it, to talk about, you know, felony cases, uh, cases where people, again, were harmed, mm. uh, and talk about the fact that our current approach is to even, you know, The the most serious cases that you can think of, like where people were legitimately hurt and even killed. If you can't go out there and start trying to shift the narrative, then I think you're doing, you know, yes, short-term interventions, Mm. but potentially long-term damage by just continuing to at least put a rubber stamp on this horrible, racist, kind of cruel and totally ineffective approach for future generations.
0: Mm. You've said a lot. And, and I, I have 5 million more questions. <laughs> no, I'm not going to be able to get them. all. Well, I, in. To come back on. I was just gonna again. say you got to come back, my friend, because I, I, have, I have some lines of question I need to explore with you some <laughs> rabbit holes, we need to dive down. Uh, so we're definitely going to have to have you back. Uh, how can people follow you and stay connected to the work of zealous?
1: So the way to follow me uh, and, and just the range of causes that, that Zealous is working on, one way to do is just follow me on Twitter. So I'm um, Scott, S-C-O-T-T-H-E-C-H. That's my, my handle on Twitter. So follow me. Um, uh, our website is Zealous with, like, a dot between the O and the U. So it's dot U-S. Mm. Uh, we're actually, just to be transparent, we're in the process of actually updating our site. We've been so focused on working on campaigns and, and efforts and projects with local partners uh, that we've uh, neglected uh, to actually update our own work, uh, which I guess is, <laughs> is the right way to do, it, right way to go about it. But in terms of campaigns, I'll, I'll just throw out uh, in terms of projects that folks should check out. We don't like you don't stamp these as zealous projects because they're, they're not the they're things we're involved in. We support local activists. I already mentioned still in around uh, holding Ellen Rosenblum accountable to actually do something about, you know, non unanimous juries. Uh, we just launched a, pro- a storytelling project in Michigan based on 100 letters from inside solitary confinement with the mm. goal of ending the torture of solitary confinement. That website is, and project is silenced, like the word silenced, dot in, I-N. Um, and the last project to check out is a similar project focused on the firsthand accounts from uh, people uh, during COVID in Texas jails, so pre-trial, and that's in. So check out those two projects and check out Shedding Light and, yeah, reach out. Feel free to jump into my DMs on Twitter. I try to be as responsive as possible.
0: I, I gotta be honest, you guys are doing amazing work. And, and I actually was impressed with the website at Zealous. so I'm looking forward to seeing it updated <laughs> because it is pretty comprehensive as it is now. Thank you for this work and, and for creating pathways for other defense attorneys, uh, public defenders, to see how there is another model that exists out there. And you're right, we don't learn any of that in law school. Uh, and this is exactly the type of structure and support system that so many in the public defense bar uh, are needing because they're facing so much. I am grateful for you, and and I've already gotten you to admit that you'll come back, so we know that that's going to happen. Haley, let's put him back on the calendar. Scott Heckinger, uh, attorney, public defender, uh, and all things pretty cool. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm looking forward to having you back on to share some more.
1: Marie, thank you so much. Talk to you soon.